Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. America, bonjour, hi, Canada. That music is familiar. If you're a longtime listener to the Hugh Hewitt Show, that means the Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us once a week in the last radio hour of the week. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues uh, from the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C., or anywhere in Hillsdale, or one of their satellite campuses, or one of their charter schools, but mostly Dr. Arn, joins me to talk about the big issues that are eternal issues. And occasionally we do current events, like next week. Uh, but this summer, we have been doing something new for the Hillsdale Dialogues, which are in their eighth year now, and you all know them and love them, and you can listen to them all if you just go to iTunes and type in Hillsdale Dialogue, or go over to hillsdale.edu, or go to hugh for hillsdalecom They're all over the place, and some of you have binge-listened to all 470 of them. We've been doing this for a long time, because Dr. Larry Arn is one of America's great professors. I told uh, president John Garvey, President Emeritus at Catholic University, I think Larry Arn is the best college president I've ever known, and I've known some great ones, Daniele Strupa at Chapman, and Mark Barron at Hobart and William Smith, and John Garvey at Catholic, uh, and uh, Jim Doty at Chapman. I've known some great ones, but I think Dr. Arn is the best because they take the university to you. Of course, their students are their number one priority, but the video courses at hillsdale.edu are what make them so different. So we put one of those video courses with the great assistance of Hillsdale onto the Salem News Channel and onto this radio broadcast this summer. It's about Aristotle's ethics. And this is the last, the 10th episode of 10 of Larry Arn teaching Hillsdale students in real time, 12 different students in a four-camera shoot. I hope you're watching on the Salem News Channel or watch the whole series at hillsdale.edu. Here it is, part 10. There's a wonderful picture by one of the translators of Aristotle that I like a lot, where he describes the condition of your soul if you were uh, virtuous. And one would be that people would find you attentive and you're not troubled by internal turmoil of any kind. You can address yourself to the outside world. But of course, to be able to do that, you can't be in a panic when you do that. You have to be courageous. To do that, you can't be lusting. You have to be moderate. To do that, you can't be stealing other people's stuff or grabbing things in defiance of the voice that tells you you ought not, you have to be just. It's also true that you can think about the ultimate things, including God, because you've got your soul in order. And that's why the book, I argue, is written in the order in which it's written. And why abruptly, right at the end, in the last two and a half pages, it turns and points toward Aristotle's politics, which, by the way, in many places inside itself, points back to Aristotle's ethics. We are made for the good and for the ultimate good. And we are all made that way in a way that makes us made for each other. And in the best cases in the political community, and no political community is perfect, it encourages the understanding of all that. Okay, um, this is our final class on Aristotle's and Nicomachean ethics. And, uh, it's going to begin with a short review of this class uh, because there is such a short review 
in chapter 6, book 10 of the Ethics. And then it's going to end with a return to some of the early themes because that's how book 10 ends. And in between that backtracking and that return is the subject of the highest human activity, which we're going to uh, discuss. And that activity, by the way, is contemplation. And uh, Dominic Quaylen over there just said that he didn't get that part. And so I would like to invite him to just sit here through this class and contemplate. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, have a good posture while you do it, too. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay, so if we go to book six, book ten, chapter six, excuse me. Uh, it's on page 190. In the middle of the first paragraph, somebody read that. So if these consequences are not satisfactory, but one ought instead to place happiness in some form of being at work, as in what was said before, and among ways of being at work, some are necessary and are chosen for the sake of something else, while others are for their own sake, it is clear that one ought to place happiness as one of those that are chosen for their own sake, and not among those that are for the sake of something else, since happiness stands in need of nothing but is self-sufficient. And those activities are chosen for their own sake, from which nothing is sought beyond the being at work. And actions in accord with virtue seem to be of this sort, since performing actions that are beautiful and serious is something chosen for its own sake. Happiness is a being at work. Uh, let's distinguish that from active condition. Bartlett and Collins, an excellent translation, translates active condition as activity. Sachs uses what he wants as a uh, emphasis of the commitment that's involved. Like if you're an excellent bicyclist, trapeze artist, let's say you become that. You're still that when you're asleep. And if you get up the next morning rested and get up there, you'll still be good at the trapeze. But the being at work, that's... Uh, when you're doing it, right? And happiness is when you're doing it. That's why there's a, in the next paragraph from where Kate stopped reading, he makes the point about how uh, happiness has more to do with work than with play. But he has an interesting definition of work because the work of the human being is not what you do in an hourly job, nine to five, to get paid. The work of the human being is the activity proper to the human being when the human being is fully operational. That's happiness. And that raises, obviously, the question, when is the human being fully at work? Would that activity concern more the body or more the soul? More the soul, but both. <laughs> and why more the soul? Because the soul is what moves the body and gives it its life. So it's like, it's prior in a way, and it's also what, um, what knows, like, the eternal or the higher things. And Don? I was going to say, well, the soul is what chooses to be at work, right? Yeah, and then just also that the soul is what is in us that has speech. So since the unique part of the human is to exercise speech in some capacity, the, the soul is what would be fulfilled by that exercise. Is the body immortal? No. Is the soul? Yes. 
Describe to me some big event in the 15th century. Speculate for me some big event in the 25th. We have immortal souls. It may be that they don't remain conscious being tied to their body. The Christian idea is that both the soul and the body are resurrected and both are significantly improved. Uh, The classic idea in the ethics, the way Aristotle puts it, is he imagines there's an afterlife on the argument that nature does nothing in vain and we have these immortal souls. On Sunday, I'm going on a trip till the following Saturday, long trip. My wife's not going. I'll come back on Saturday and the dogs will be thrilled to see me. And I stop by after lunch, during lunch, pick up something, and I go home tonight at about 5.30 or 6, and they'll be thrilled to see me in the same way. They live in the right now. I just told a story about the nature of dogs, and that nature is eternal, by which I mean, as long as there's that kind of being, that's what it will be like. That's immortal, see? The soul is the part that addresses that. And it's the most charming. Remember I said that thing uh, about the sadness of age. And I was using that because that sadness is also, by the way, a deep satisfaction. Because it's a measurement of your life and what it's for and what you've done. And one treasures that very much, right? But that can only happen if you know not only what's happened but what's coming. You see? And so that's the nature of the thing. And the soul is the part that abides. You know, the body can be a source of great pleasure. Athletes, there's a joy in that. And they have it, and they have a community of it. There's a great pleasure in that. But the the pleasures of the soul are eternal. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with the second part of Episode 10 of Dr. Larry Arn teaching the ethics to Hillsdale students. Episode 10 of our course on the ethics, the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. I'm Hugh Hugh at all things Hillsdale or at hillsdale.edu. And on the prior nine of this series on the ethics, available at the iTunes site for the Hillsdale Dialogues or at hillsdale.edu or at hughforhillsdale.com. Let's return to Dr. Oren in the last class with his 12 Hillsdale seniors on Aristotle's ethics. We long for the perfections of the good, and the greatest perfections are of the soul. And the thinking virtues are the ones that reach the immortal. It's, uh, the reason it's slightly tragic is because the thinking virtues are exercised inside a mortal body. And that's the human condition. That's, that's what we're coping with here. Religion is an answer to that. And philosophy and theology are explorations of answers of that. The claim of this book is that this is certainly the way, the way to live well. And you're not going to have an angelic life if you live this way. You're going to have a superb and happy human life, and that's all you can have. But, of course, that's not all that the book is about. 
Because to understand what the best way is to live is to understand the ways in which the human being is oriented toward things beyond itself. And those things are available to us through the intellect. The penultimate thing in the book is all about that. And that's why we've reached a great height. And it's really lovely. And remember, it's already been said that our highest associations with one another are about that subject matter of the ultimate and the eternal. Now, since we're going to talk about this intellectual crown of the intellectual achievements, we should talk about what the intellectual achievements are that are listed in this book. First of all, intellect, what is that? Greek word is nous. So it's like the mind then, or the, the part, I guess, of like the body or the soul, along with reason, that's capable of like rational thought. Uh, the intellect is the part that sees that, and that, and that, and that, and that, right? It's the apprehension of the beings around us. That's what it does. It sees. It's an immediate grasping. Now, we said that there are two kinds of things to know and two chief intellectual virtues that approach them. And one kind is the changeable, and that's practical judgment. And the other kind is the unchangeable, and what's that? Wisdom. And uh, Knowledge. Knowledge. So knowledge is the accurate identification of something that lasts. So practical wisdom is shifting stuff. And they they too have a nature. And they too have a being. And they too have a reality. And at the moment in which they're perceived, there is a true way to react in relation to them. But and, And since you have to act, that capacity is incredibly important to human beings. On the other hand, can't you see that this knowledge and the thing beyond it that they're better, because once you have knowledge of a thing that lasts, now you know that thing, and you can build on that, and it's not going to change. So that's knowledge. Uh, What's wisdom? Yeah. It's knowledge of the the causes of things, the sources of um, essentially the reasons for why these necessary truths hold. Yeah, more. Uh, yeah, it includes knowledge of like the sources of things. That doesn't mean I don't think it means uh, the the movement of the planets. You know, for apparently Hubble, apparently he just observed that these these planets were all moving and there was a consistency in the way they were moving. He just saw that, right? But the point is, the source is not just what makes the planet move. It's also the knowledge that they're moving and the knowledge that there was some central point at the beginning. That's part two of episode 10. Don't go anywhere, America. Part three is straight ahead. That's the short one. The long one is coming up. Dr. Larry Arn talking with a dozen of Hillsdale's best and brightest. Welcome back, America. I'm about to play part three of episode 10. Dr. Larry Arn gathered a dozen students at the president's home at Hillsdale. 
You can watch. If you just started listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show and you've missed the first nine episodes of this, you can go to hillsdale.edu and binge watch the entire course on ethics or any of their many video offerings. It's really a world of learning and fun and educational experience, just like the Hillsdale Dialogues have been for all these many past years. We go to the end, the third segment of Episode 10. Dr. Arne and his 12 students at Hillsdale on Aristotle's Ethics. Wisdom is the knowledge of those sources and the implications of those sources, which means both things that might have caused them and the effects that they have, as long as they're abiding and eternal. That's why we think of wise people as being old. Because we're human beings, right? We're not God who perceives everything at once, right? Uh, We're time-bound, and that means we learn this, and then we learn this, and we learn this, and we learn this. And it's a process of putting it together. And remember, the body comes into it because while we're learning, we're aging. And on any given day, while we're learning, we're tiring, right? And so to become wise is to spend your time well to put things like that together. If you follow the advice of my teacher, which I convey to you and which I've tried to follow myself, there's a reward coming to you. That is to say, pick some great thing and get to know it. And you will find, if you keep at it long enough, that you will have a share of wisdom. And if you, if you don't do that, if you study everything a little bit, you might miss that. So that's wisdom. Uh, so what's contemplation? This is said to be the highest human activity. I guess we should read a passage about it, right? Page 191, chapter 7. So start reading that first paragraph in chapter 7. But if happiness is being at work in accord with virtue, it is reasonable that it would be in accord with the most powerful virtue, and this would belong to the best part. Now, whether this is intellect or some other part that seems by nature to rule and lead and have a conception about things that are beautiful and divine and to be either divine itself or the most divine of the things in us, the being at work of this part in accord with its own proper virtue would be complete happiness. That this way of being at work is contemplative has been said, and this would seem to be in agreement with the things said before and with the truth. For this way of being at work is the most powerful since the intellect is the most powerful of the things in us, and the things with which the intellect is concerned are the most powerful of the things that can be known. It is also the most continuous, for we are more able to contemplate continuously than to act in any way whatever. That's something more than just an assertion that the contemplative is the highest. It also indicates part of the reason why. Because wisdom is... uh, Accumulative. You think, it's very good, you know, you think, you behold, you think, you put it together. The moment where you're beholding the sources of knowledge are the highest moments because there, what's on your mind, your mind is the most perfect thing in you and what's on your mind is the most perfect thing. When you're reasoning about it later, you have to consider other things. And, by the way, the accumulation of wisdom can better equip one for beholding, again, the highest things. 
C.S. Lewis likes to describe the point, and this doesn't fully work in my opinion, but it's indicative. He likes to talk about how we live for our beholdings of the beautiful, and they define us. And we can never really fully grasp it, he says. It's elusive. And so, and it comes upon you unawares. I'm very lucky. I've seen some very beautiful things in my life in, in nature. And maybe the prettiest is Yosemite. It's certainly one of the prettiest things in the world. You've seen them. And it's just, and doesn't it uh, knock you over when you see it? Yeah. The story is that when some soldiers saw it for the first time, the commander of the troop sent one of the soldiers back with drawings and a written description to go tell Abraham Lincoln, who signed the order that preserved it. And, you know, if you're way back on the East Coast and the Civil War is on, it's not like you're going to go see it tomorrow. It's just to know that something exists like that is very commanding. Same thing about, I think, the things that Einstein discovered. Same thing, I think about the things that Aristotle discovered. And when the most perfect thing in you is dwelling on those things, then that is the most divine thing. Gil? So is contemplation like wonder? Those two? Uh, yes, but uh, without the uh, puzzling. You know, wonder is you behold and you don't understand and you want to know more. If you step back and see, of course, these are fine shades. And these distinctions among these words for the intellectual virtues that Aristotle uses, in my opinion, are meant to suggest. Just, it's just like uh, all the uh, operations of the human being and the distinctions he makes about parts of the soul and all that. What he's trying to do is explain the phenomenon as they are apparent. So courage is a phenomenon. And it's something different from friendship. And it's something different than moderation. It's not like you can see courage in the soul. It doesn't occupy lobe 24B, right? And, and, uh, and so this is like that, too. There's a kind of thinking where you just look at a thing and see what it is. And, and remember, the dogs look at a thing and apparently they don't. If they did, they would say so. It's also true that it's not doing that feat of intellect that we do that makes everything else we do possible. And then a second step is calculating what to do. It's orders of magnitude more complex for us than the life, say, of the wolf. The wolf has to stalk and hunt and try to figure out how to live against necessity. But the wolf is guided in all those things by instinct. Whereas we... There's enormous complications when we're deciding what to do. Because this other thing is in the middle of the calculation. You know, it's not just, I want this, and these things are going on, and here's how I get through them. And they're shifting around so I may have to change course all the time. It is like that, but it's more than like that. Because every time a means occurs to you, it pops in your mind, well, can I do that? And that's different than the question, will it work? Will it work is a very important question. You know, you get in a war with Adolf Hitler, you need to win. But would you do things that made you like him? And if you did, would you worry about that and regret it? I know Winston Churchill asked himself, to some extent, vindicated himself. 
But you know, he was a very ruthless man. And if he was a wolf, he just would have ate the thing before him, right? But he was a man, and he had to wonder, there's something other than just the fact that this might be successful that I have to think about. That's the second step. That's practical wisdom. Follows on intellect. And then the next step is, isn't it fine to know things that don't change, even if we don't use the knowledge? Or in the last step, especially if we don't use the knowledge. The word for contemplation is theoria. We get theater from it. What happens in the theater? You watch. And, you know, if it happens to be Shakespeare, then you watch all of nature unfolded. (laughs) It's really great. And it's a beautiful thing, and you're just dwelling on that at the time. Aristotle's account of God in the metaphysics goes like this. Here we, down at the bottom, C.S. Lewis points out that the ancients and the medievals didn't think that we were the center of the universe. They thought we were the bottom of it. I might have said this already. And we're looking up at the top, and we see the movements of those great bodies, and we think that these are what we call prime movers. They make other things move. But there must be something that doesn't move. Do you know why there must be something that doesn't move? Because movement is imperfection. If it's here and it needs to go here, it's not there yet in which it's imperfect, or it decays down to here, and then it's not perfect. Now, a systematic cycle could conceivably be perfect, more perfect than that, but rest is superior to motion. Now, could this ultimate thing in virtue of which all other things move, he posits, would it be a body? Body is a material. Matter is imperfect. It would be immaterial. It would be a thought. What would it think if there was a moment where it was thinking about God and another moment when it was thinking about man? The God moment would be superior. And a more perfect being wouldn't have the man part. In Aristotle, God is thought, thinking about itself. And everything moves in relation to that. And that ties into this claim about us that when we are at our most perfect, we are beholding perfect things. And once you see that, by the way, it has enormous implications for how you conceive your life. Uh, For example, if you had that experience and loved it, you would be disinclined probably to participate in a kind of governance in which you lived other people's lives for them. Because that's a lot of busy work. And why would you want that? Helping other people to be independent and to live rich lives and to cultivate a civilization in which these higher activities are sheltered, that might be a very worthy life. And it might not be the highest life, but not everybody's meant for the highest life. And it could be the shield and guardian of the highest life. All right, we'll be back with the very last, that part. Uh, It'll be part four of episode 10 of The Ethics when we come back to the Hillsdale Dialogue. Hugh Hewitt here. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu.
All honor to Kyle Mernon. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Kyle and Dwayne and Adam collaborated to take the Hillsdale online course on Aristotle's ethics taught by Larry Arn to 12 Hillsdale seniors and to move it from the video channel at hillsdale.edu to us. We're driving new people to watch the video courses, but we're also teaching you as you drive to work about Aristotle's ethics, what he thinks about friendship, what he thinks about virtue, what he thinks about the happiest life. We've been so thrilled with your response. Maybe we'll try it again next summer. We go back to live with Larry Arn next week. But don't miss, this is the very last segment of a 10-part course on Aristotle's ethics. Take it away, Dr. Arn. He's led us on a journey that starts with simple observations about what we seem to be able to perceive and what we claim and goes through the pleasures and the pains that divert us from the right thing to friendship and the intellectual virtues. He's leading us up toward God and he thinks the early steps are important. You need them. If you become a coward or a wastrel or a dissolute or a tyrant. Because see, what's a tyrant? That's rank injustice. That's taking from people things that naturally belong to them. And the one who takes it values those things over much. Because you can't take from someone what they have contemplated. In book 10, we turn from pleasure to these contemplative virtues. I should mark, on page 194, the first full paragraph, some of the things I just said are in there. The simplicity and the self-sufficiency and the perfection of beholding the most perfect things. Just to show you the justification, look at the top of page 195. So the being at work of a God surpassing in blessedness would be contemplative. And so among human activities, the one most akin to this would be the most happy. And so happiness would be some sort of contemplation. But there will also be a need of external prosperity for one who is a human being, since nature is not self-sufficient for contemplating. But there is also a need for the body to be healthy and for food and other attentions to be present. But one certainly ought not to suppose that someone who is going to be happy will need many things or grand ones if it is not possible to be blessed without external goods. For self-sufficiency does not consist in excess any more than action does. And it is possible for one who is not a ruler of land and sea to perform beautiful actions. So see, a ruler of land and sea, you know, that's a, you, you don't have to be a mighty man to be a happy man. But of course, it's evident elsewhere in this book and, and in the politics that a mighty man who, is, who knows that and who is protective of the ones who seek the highest kind of self-sufficiency, that's a blessing. If you go to uh, the number 30 on page 197 and just below that, but it is difficult to hit, read that. But it is difficult to hit upon a right training toward virtue from youth. And remember, toward virtue, now it means all of it, start to finish, right? Up there, right at the beginning, too. All of that. It's difficult to hit upon a right training that leads up here, 
Go ahead. From youth, when one has not been brought up under laws of that sort, for living temperately and with endurance is not pleasant to most people, and especially not to the young. Hence, it is necessary to arrange for rearing and exercises by laws, since they will not be painful when they have become habitual. We need laws. We're back to the law. And then go to page 200. Last full paragraph. Somebody read that. First, then, if anything partial has been well said by our predecessors, let us try to go through it, and then, on the basis of the collection of constitutions, to look at what sorts of things preserve and destroy cities, and what sorts do so for each sort of constitution, and for what reasons some are governed well and others are the reverse. For, when these things have been examined, perhaps we might also have more insight into what sort of constitution is best and how each sort is best arranged, and by using what laws and customs. So, having made a beginning, let us discuss it. The book ends pointing to the Constitution. I think Professor Jaffa is right. The web is seamless. If you want to live the highest kind of life, Take care that you live in a civil society where you can be free. That concludes our 10 weeks of Aristotle's Ethics with Dr. Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.